Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, this is uh, Paul Axton. I'm here today with Matt, and we are in the week of the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima. 75 years ago, it was actually August 6th. And then on August 9th, the dropping of the bomb on Nagasaki. And so today we thought we would talk a little bit about the bombings, the what was happening in World War II. I'm in the state of Missouri. My daughter went actually to Truman University. And of course, it was Truman who made the decision to, to drop the bomb. That's the discussion. That's the direction as we're thinking about Making this a time to reflect upon peace and how Christianity then is promoted by peaceable means, by nonviolent means. Yeah, hopefully it's a, it's an alternative to what we're going to talk about today. It was a little bit shocking. I mean, when I you know you asked me to come back on the on the podcast and have a conversation with you, and then when I asked, I said, "Well, what do you want to talk about?" And you said that, "Well, you know, the anniversary is coming up." of uh, the atomic bombs and you know when you start looking at the at the youtube videos and uh, the documentaries and the interviews and things like that it really is shocking it's horrifying seeing you know the children and and um tens of thousands of people and just the utter just devastation uh and then i, I think that we can forget you know we just move on with our lives and but whenever you start to remember and take a look back at these things we realize uh, the power, I think, of, of what Forging Plowshares is trying to do, and that is just to promote the authentic Christian gospel of peace. And you can quite clearly see what the alternative looks like. And Paul, you know, you, you lived in Japan for 20 years, and uh, I, I guess I'm not sure how close you were there in Scuba to Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but for people like me who weren't alive on August 6th and August 9th of 1945, can you explain to us what led up to this awful event? Can you just sort of lay out and tell us the story of that? Well, you may be, you, you may be dating me a, a little older than I am. I also was not alive in 1945. I was born 10 years later. Um, but we did live on the main island of Honda. I, I thought you were at least 95 or 100, so I apologize. I... <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I just like Yoda. I'm 800 years old. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I guess I guess what I meant to say is that you know you you spent so much time in Japan and and for me this really is this is like a different this is a different world and even looking at the black and white footage and it just seems so far removed. But it only happened 75 years ago from someone who who really did spend the time there and, and talk to the people. You know a lot more about it, I'm sure, than than most of our listeners. So. Uh, maybe to just kind of tell the story from from your perspective or from more of a Japanese perspective. Maybe I need to begin with the the sort of prejudiced perspective that you get. You know, Faith's father was the, with the occupation forces and was a chaplain. And then later they uh, lived on the southern tip of the southern island of Kyushu. And actually it was Kyushu that the Americans were planning to invade. And so I remember taking a trip to that bay where the Americans planned invasion. And of course, the propaganda that we've all heard is the number of lives that would have been lost if the American invasion had been necessitated. And that number, you know, if you go through clips of uh, Harry Truman, through the years, the number is going to grow. And today, you know, people talk about millions. That, that is the justification that is often used, is that the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki were supposedly life-saving and life-saving for the Americans and even for the Japanese. You don't have to scratch very far and and that propaganda has has clearly been dispelled that was an understanding that was certainly promoted by the the u.s government by harry truman 
but in fact not by Truman's own generals in the field, that six of his seven commanding generals said that the, the dropping of the bombs was an entirely useless endeavor. And that included General MacArthur, who would be, come into Japan with the occupation, was commanding those forces. And it was true even of Curtis LeMay, who was just ruthless and was known. You know, he's the one who had been behind the fire bombings in Tokyo and developed new technology and human destruction. But even Curtis LeMay had said, no, the bombings of Hiroshima, they were trying to persuade Truman to not do it. And of course, this, along with the very scientists who had developed the weapon, they had, by this time, uh, many of them were trying to convince Truman not to use the weapon. And so there were all sorts of alternatives that were being offered. I guess that growing up and that, you know, I remember standing on the bay and, and that was what was told to me. That was what most Americans have believed is that, well, the United States was forced into dropping the bombs because of the Japanese unwillingness to offer unconditional surrender. I guess that any kind of historical event is always open to alternative interpretations. But the thing that is not being uh, not being brought out in that kind of disingenuous understanding, kind of naive understanding that most Americans have, is that the Soviet Union, in fact, invaded Manchuria. The Soviet troops invaded on August 9th before the bombing later that day in Nagasaki. The bombing in Hiroshima, you know, it's kind of interesting that they've already had countless numbers or many, many Japanese cities had already been destroyed. And of course, that hadn't produced the surrender. You could look at that, that uh, they kept the news tightly controlled. And so the devastation, you know, that was partly the the, the news was traveling very slowly anyway, and then with the, uh, the clampdown on uh, any kind of news coming out of Hiroshima, I don't think it was clear to e either Japanese leaders or others that the degree of devastation of the bomb, of course, that would eventually become clear. And so we get this idea that it was the dropping of the two bombs, but a historian, Tsuyoshi Hasegawa, he, he wrote a book in 2005 called Racing the Enemy. And what Hasegawa does that, of course, most Americans would not be able to do, he goes back through the conversation that diet members and the wartime government were having and the uh, leading up to the decision to surrender. And in fact, his point is that it was the fear of the Soviets. The Japanese, up until invasion of Manchuria, had been hoping that the Soviets, in some way, would be their mediators with the Americans. They had already decided they'd lost the war. Everybody knew the war was, was lost. So the, what was being debated by the end of the war was the terms of the surrender always in that was the issue of the emperor. Would the emperor be put on trial in a war crimes trial, or would in fact the emperor and the imperial household be preserved? And so that was always the concern. What Hasegawa finds is that the, in fact, the, the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki really didn't play a part in the the discussion once the Soviets, you know, the Soviets had already defeated Japan two times prior to this. It was that, that is beyond question, that the reason for the surrender had nothing to do with the dropping of the atomic bombs. Now, of course, this gets the understanding here, you know, is, well, yeah, but what was playing in the minds of Harry Truman? Did Harry Truman understand that? And of course, Harry Truman's old generals were telling him the Japanese are defeated. 
the terms of surrender are, you know, it's, it's, the question is, is it unconditional or are we going to allow them to preserve the emperor? It seems clear that Harry Truman, like the Japanese, was more focused on the Soviets at this point and the dropping of the atomic bombs. First of all, you, know, you, you, you probably need to separate out Hiroshima from Nagasaki. You know, if somebody's going to argue for the justification of the bombs, there is no justification for this kind of devastation and destruction. But certainly the, the bombing of Nagasaki, Truman was almost looking at it. And this is the way the, way the scientists and his own generals were, that, that was their critique of Truman, was that it was a kind of experiment being carried out on the Japanese. That understanding, how pervasive that is in Japan, that even in Japan you're going to find both stories being told. But those who, who've been informed about it, those who've been educated about it. But of course, the, the main thing in Japan is just the overwhelming devastation of, of having, you know, there's no people on the face of the planet that had experienced an atomic bomb and to experience two atomic bombs, you know, three days apart. I think it's directly behind the continuing support of Article 9, you know, that in MacArthur's Constitution and then in the Japanese reinforcement of that Constitution, it is called the Peace Constitution. MacArthur's idea is that he wanted Japan forever after to, to be a, a nation that would not aggressively engage in war. And so that's written into the Constitution in Article 9. Now, to, to just set that up as simply a product of the Americans may do an injustice that the Japanese diet and certain members in the diet then after the war were certainly strongly embracing peace and the Japanese were embracing and advocating for peace as an end in and of itself. And of course, this is the continued struggle in Japan. You have the Liberal Democratic Party that is the party that has been supported by the Americans. Ironically, of course, it, that in the post-war period, the Americans have wanted the Japanese to have a strong military to be to kind of their proxy representation in that part of the world. And so the, the grand irony here is that Japan has been pushed. And so the, the reigning party in Japan has been the Liberal Democratic Party. Uh, during the period we were there, just a, a short period, the, the Liberal Democratic Party fell out of power. But other than that, they've been in power. And they then, the primary forces in that, have been pushing to end the Article 9 or to get rid of the peace constitution. But at the same time, there have been forces in Japan. There is a strong element of uh, counter voices to uh, getting rid of the peace constitution. So there's a strong peace movement in Japan. And I think that that is in part a byproduct, certainly of just the devastation of Japan, just the general devastation, but specifically to see the devastation of the bombings in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So, you know, you understand that the implication of what you're saying, if I'm, if I'm understanding you correctly, is that uh, Harry Truman committed war crimes to prove a point uh, to Russia. Is that, is that what you're saying? Yeah, I, I, don't, I think there's no question that Harry Truman would have been hung as a war criminal if the tables had been turned. Obviously, you know, just uh, Hiroshima, that. The estimates, you know, just the immediate uh, devastation, uh, 150,000 civilians killed. Maybe, you know, very shortly it's going to be 200,000. And, of course, that the, the becomes almost a countless number because of the radiation poisoning and the cancers. People that, you know, even children that were in the womb at the bombing have suffered because of of that bombing. You know, you don't need to go very far back. That civilian bombing, it had begun uh, in Europe in World War One, and then in World War Two, of course, that there is the increase of civilian bombing. It just becomes the accepted thing that you're going to kill civilians. 
what role that plays is very unclear and and you can see arguments that in fact it played nothing no role of any kind of military significance it might have some side of kind of psychological impact but especially in japan there is a kind of race hatred that arose during the war the japanese were just portrayed as the equivalent of insects that need to be squashed I thought it was a kind of interesting. Noam Chomsky remembers, you know, he was at a, a camp. He was a counselor at a camp when he was 15. He talks about, you know, hearing about it. And part of his shock was the reaction of the people around him. That They just didn't seem to be affected at all. Maybe partly he thought because they didn't understand the bomb. But later, in, uh, about five years later, he and his wife, go to a, a theater in the red light district, you know, normally where you would watch pornography. And there was a documentary and he, that was showing about Hiroshima. And they actually had film footage of people's skin, you know, just dripping off. Faith and I, uh, we've been down to Hiroshima several times. I've been through the museum. I've been to Nagasaki. I've not been to the all of the museums that are in Nagasaki, but those are pictures that are fairly common of the, the people's skin. It looks like it's just melting. It's falling off. Chomsky says that in the theater that people started laughing at the sight of Japanese being subjected to this. And so it really was a kind of pornographic experience, was his point, that the documentary was playing a kind of pornographic role for people in depicting of these horrors as if they were humorous. That kind of gets at the, the race hatred, of course, that had arisen, strangely, that did not arise to the degree for the Germans that it did for the Japanese. Not to in any way take away from, you know, certainly the Japanese committed wartime atrocities, but not on the scale of the German genocide and German tortures. But it is true that just the cruelty of treatment that prisoners of war had received in Japan, or just a pure racism, but for some reason, Japanese races or attitudes of racism toward the Japanese were so extreme. And I think that played into, you know, here's Harry Truman, not a complicated man, a kind of, uh, he had been a hat salesman. He said he, he never, somebody asked him after this if he had trouble sleeping. He said, I never, never had trouble sleeping my whole life. I just had decisions to make and I made them. You'll see the uh, pilots of the Enola Gay, you know, the Tibbets, similar sort of thing. And it's all, it, as you look at these kind of this unthinking devastation that occurred, you would wish that someone had paused to consider the, the horror that was being unleashed on the world. And, and of course, even today, that that's kind of the, the tragedy in hearing the justifications for the bomb is that people still imagine that the, those bombs in some way served a purpose other than just murder. In the end, they did not. And in fact, if Truman's point was to in some way intimidate the Russians, and of course, that was Churchill's point. And in the Truman administration, you know, that, that he was, he had a, a, an advisor who had, had warned him not to use, not to wear the nuclear weapons like a pistol on your hip. And that's sort of what he did. You know, he kind of used it to try to intimidate the Soviets. All that did was just that gave us the Cold War. I don't know. Who do you blame? Who do you point to? In a way, it's, it is kind of the, the history of the world, the, the naivete surrounding the notion that uh, there is a redemptive violence. If ever people had hoped that there would be redemptive violence, maybe it was surrounding the atomic bombs. But of course, the point is that's always a myth. That violence, it served really no purpose. So was Harry Truman guilty of war crimes? I don't know how you could judge otherwise. Yeah, it's a terrible, you know, as you're describing this, it's, um, it's, it's such a tragic, terrible uh, thing that you're describing, you know, the myth of redemptive violence. I mean, this is the thing that we're taught in schools, you know, when you learn about World War II, you learn that the United States were the, we were the heroes in the whole thing. And part of that heroic victory was dropping those atomic bombs in Japan. And, uh, you know, we'll talk a little bit later about part of the rationale 
other people have. They say, well, you know, if America wouldn't have done what they did in World War II, you know, Hitler would have taken over the whole world. And we could talk about that here in a, in a little bit. But I do think that when I'm just listening to what you're saying and considering the sort of massive scale, and again, just spending the, the morning looking at the videos and things of the, of the people's skin and the, you know, the, the kimonos and stuff being melted to the, to the women's backs to where the, the pattern is just a part of their skin now. And to hear from you that, well, actually, it was a tactic, you know, that the Truman was using not to end the war, but to sort of make a point about the military might, I guess, of the United States is just, it's just shocking. And I want to kind of transition a little bit into, you know, most of our listeners are, are Christians. And so that should be shocking and horrifying enough, everything that we're saying and explaining. But, you know, I had once heard that, that Nagasaki was a city with a very high number of, of Christians living there, you know, and of course, a notoriously non-Christian nation like japan maybe was even the center of of japanese christianity and i in my research uh, it was the city of kokura that was to be the original target of the atomic bomb but as providence would have it or you know maybe some sort of dark providence i'm not quite sure but it was too cloudy you know and the pilots uh, they couldn't find the target and so they instead chose the city of nagasaki and so i don't understand why a supposedly christian nation like the united states would attack this particular, particularly Christian city. Do you have any idea of, of why that was a target? This almost makes nonsense of a Christianity. If you're going to say it was a Christian people that dropped the atomic bomb, here is probably the worst you know, devastation that has ever been unleashed on humankind. And to in any way imagine that this arises because of the Prince of Peace is a kind of vulgarization, I think, of the whole notion. Maybe not just of Christianity, but maybe just of religion. The, the idea is that as one who believes that the teaching, the primary teaching of the New Testament is of an alternative kingdom and alternative method to that kingdom being peace, uh, peaceable nonviolence, which is certainly not simply pacifism or, or passive. If ever there were an antichrist moment or a revealing of the antichrist, and by antichrist, I think we have to go back and, and recognize that in the New Testament, partly when they're talking about the antichrist, they're talking about Christians. You know, this is John and He's describing the Antichrists, plural, as those who were actually members of the church that uh, was there in Ephesus. The Antichrists would be hard to recognize because they would use the language of the Christ. They would present themselves as Christian. I don't know what Christianity could mean. I guess we can call that, but if you're going to call that that just seems to, to be exactly everything that Christianity is not. Add into that, then, the people that are being destroyed. Nagasaki was the center of Christianity in Japan, and in fact, the bomb that was dropped over uh, Nagasaki, it went off. It, the wind blew it in a direction. It ended up going off over a Catholic church. And, of course, many of the people surrounding the church, many of the people. I've, uh, one of the fascinating things that around Nagasaki and the Goto Islands that are uh, just off the coast there in Nagasaki, some of the biggest Catholic churches are there. And, of course, there's a whole history of the persecution of Japanese Christians in Nagasaki, that it was in Nagasaki that you have the crucifixion of Japanese that we have some 10,000 Japanese Christian martyrs uh, during the Tokugawa period. Maybe that just kind of brings out the, the pure evil of this thing. You would think that as, as a Christian, the one thing that we might be able to agree upon, this is a kind of Mennonite idea, is that we wouldn't, a Christian brother would not shoot his Christian brother. But to have so-called Christians devastating the Christianity in Japan 
Yeah, it's just doubly reprehensible. I, you know, or at least it's a sign of the reprehensible acts that were taking place. You know, as I'm describing this, of course, the the city that they didn't bomb, ironically, was Kyoto, and the reason they didn't bomb Kyoto was because of the significant Buddhist and you know Shinto historical sites that are there. But there were just as significant Christian sites in Nagasaki. First of all, by the time you get to Nagasaki, there is just even a reprehensible argument for the atomic bombs. It doesn't work because the second bomb, it was just more murder. And actually, the Americans at the time didn't mind that. And the proof of this, if, if you doubt this, when the Soviets invaded Manchuria, and, and really long before this, the Japanese were ready to surrender, but certainly on August 9th, when they invaded Manchuria, they were ready to surrender. But ironically, those were not the end of the bombings. Makoto Oda was, is a novelist. He's passed away. But he was in Osaka, and he remembers as a boy that the American planes came over, and there were it was one of the largest conglomerate of planes. They, they got together some thousand bombers to fly over Osaka. This is on August 14th. Everybody knows the Japanese are surrendering. The surrendering, the negotiations are already going on. In fact, the Americans drop pamphlets saying that Japan has surrendered as they are carrying out saturation bombings of Osaka. Oda said he, he would spend the rest of his life it kind of infuriated him. Here is this message. Oh, yes, you've already surrendered. The war is over, and we're going to kill you some more anyway. Why? You know, what, what was that for? What was that about? It served no possible purpose other than, again, that Japan was just a despised nation and killing more Japanese. It just posed an opportunity in the minds of many Americans and wartime generals and fighter pilots rather than any kind of obstacle. So it's just, in, you know, there is a kind of incomprehension as to the levels of devastation and evil. We often are able to project this on other people and can see it, you know, of course, our tendency is to always demonize the enemy. And that, I, that occurred that was a propaganda instrument of the United States government, and it certainly worked. The propaganda worked in World War II. But, of course, it's time that we reflect back and realize, oh, the, the demonic here is one that captured the Americans in the levels of devastation and just useless killing that were carried out in this period. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's overwhelming as, as I'm listening to everything that you're saying. I guess I don't even know where to begin to respond because you said uh, you said so much. The first thing, though, that's at the top of, of my list of questions that I would have is, um, you know, the incomprehensibility of, uh, and this just seems to be a repeated thing in Christianity throughout the ages, one could even argue, except for maybe small groups. And that is, is that terrible violence is just sort of part of, it's just sort of part of it. And so I guess I have a very difficult time as someone who's trying to follow Christ myself, uh, and especially, you know, the, the peaceable Christ, not always getting it right, not always understanding, you know, how to live that out or to carry it out. But I guess you, you said the Mennonite, I have this, you know, I have the poster, the Mennonite poster. It says that you know, maybe the Christians around the world can agree that, they'll, that they won't kill one another. To kind of extrapolate from that, it's like, well, you would think that the Christians of the world would agree that we won't drop atomic or nuclear bombs on Christian, on particularly Christian, you know, cities where we know that 50,000 people or more are going to be eviscerated uh, and that their children are going to have birth defects and things like this. And so I really do, Paul, I think that this is the type of thing that, uh, you know, maybe outsiders look at Christianity and, you know, they just, they just think it's kind of a joke. Or, or, you know, I mean, I don't mean to be too harsh, but it, it's this sort of a massive incongruity, you know, with the teachings of Christ that I guess I could see where someone on the outside could go, this is ridiculous. 
Were there any major sort of Christian peace movements during that time? I guess I'm, on the one hand, I'm, I'm thinking that the bombs were just totally unexpected, right? I mean, that was, that was part of it. Um, but was there, that you're aware of, any sort of uh, Christian outcry at the, at the atrocities? The people, the American people, and especially the church, may not have known too much about it because there was a surprise, you know, the, the bombs. But I'm just wondering if there was an outcry that you're aware of in the churches. Yeah, there, there was Dorothy Day. Uh, interestingly, she played on the name Truman. And of course, Dorothy Day had, had been a, a pacifist, nonviolent. Uh, she had been one of the few voices in the, among Catholics against the war. She, she says, you know, Truman, true man. Oh, maybe, you know, normally we think of Christ as the true man. And you know, she ridiculed, or, or here, here is maybe the alternative, you know, to, to Christ. I think that there were voices that would develop. There were obviously people that were already part of peace churches had warned against it. In Japan, the Japanese were put in a kind of odd position. There's a story of a, a, a man named uh, Tsutomu Yamaguchi. Yamaguchi is the only person recognized. Actually, there was about 70 people, but he's the one person recognized by the Japanese government. He experienced the dropping of the bomb on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. He was a marine engineer, and he was his company sent him to Hiroshima on a business trip. And during those three days that he was there, the bomb was dropped on Hiroshima. He actually had to make his way through the center of the city. He, he was burnt, and the black rain that came down, you know, he experienced that. He saw people die from that. And then he went to, back to, took a train back to Nagasaki in three days, and then experienced it again. He may be typical of the time, you know, as, because he felt strongly that he needed as someone who experienced both of these bombings, that he needed to just speak out about the devastation. And his own family, they, they resisted it. You know, when he was in his 50s, he says, well, I'm going to start, you know, telling people just to, to kind of encourage peace. His daughter was getting married, and there was prejudice against Hibaksha, or the explosion affected person that is that these people were not seen as ideal marriage partners because they had sicknesses and they're liable they you know people weren't even sure what these sicknesses were it was you know it was a while before they understood how radiation poisoning worked and so his own daughter said well you know if you tell people that you survived both won't that just be an encouragement to people to think that they can drop bombs and, and people will survive? And so he didn't. He did. His wife uh, eventually passed away. And in his 90s then, he began to speak out for the first time and began to travel the world and address the United Nations as one of the few people that had experienced both. But one of the things that he talks about, he, he was not a Christian or a believer of any kind. He says, you know, in the face of these sorts of things, religion, that was his question. Why would Christians of America kill Christians in Japan? What can that religion possibly mean? But there is the church there in Nagasaki where the bomb was dropped, and there's the Virgin Mary that in fact was burned, that is the statue, and it bears the scars that in many ways, and this is what Yamaguchi pointed out that it's like the Virgin Mary bears the scars that the Hibaksha, many of them suffered from. These big boils would form, and the doctors really didn't know these, you know, kind of growths on people's skin. And the Virgin Mary, you know, her eyes are darkened, her half of her face is there's kind of a burnt hole. And so for him, there is the result of that. It's a kind of telling point that if the religion means anything, if Christianity means anything, it cannot have the meaning that 
Jesus is on the side that would destroy his church, his people. But Jesus must be on the side of those who are oppressed by these people. And so by definition, those who would kill, torture, maim, commit a kind of genocide, atrocity, to call that Christianity is to, to empty the word of any meaning. Obviously, that's not Christianity as far as you and I are concerned. But where I'm, where I'm very concerned, I think that we would both say then that, you know, on August 6, 1945, the United States of America under Harry S. Truman committed perhaps the greatest war crime ever perpetrated against humanity in a single day. It is kind of depressing, I'll be honest, because I'd be, you know, when it comes to the to the church, because I don't know, Paul, why don't, why wouldn't the, the average Christian share your view, my view on this? Um, it would be easier to explain why the average American might not share, you know, uh, you know, your, your telling of the story or uh, the world, though, may have a little bit of a different perspective on the American telling of the story, you know, considering what they may look at as imper- American imperialism and things like that. Can you help me just as your friend? I, I like, you know, why does the Christian church not, I would guess that there would be a whole lot of people, I, you know, in the Christian church that would not, that would actually say, well, what Paul, what you're describing is extremely unfortunate and terrible, but you understand that we had to do it. You know, you've already kind of given us some clues to say that, well, no, actually, we didn't have to do it. This is what the rationale is always going to be, right? They're always going to say, well, yeah, but if someone didn't stand up to Hitler, or yeah, someone didn't stand up to this guy or to that guy. I can see why the the Japanese man that you were telling the story about was saying, this is great. This is ridiculous. Like, what on earth does this Christianity have to do with anything in the world if you would bomb, you know, the Virgin Mary? You know, it's like, it's just... It's kind of disgusting and gross, and I and I can certainly understand why people would be like, "I'm good. I don't. I, I don't. You know, <laughs> I don't want to be a part of that sort of of religion." And so, because I think that you and I so often, uh, you know, in our conversations and just in forging plowshares, and it's almost like we talk about two Christianities a lot. Is what it kind of comes down to. There's one form of Christianity that I guess would say. I don't know. Sometimes you got to drop an atomic bomb. Sometimes you got to torture someone to death. You know, sometimes you got to do evil so the good may come. But then you're offering a different perspective and saying that, well, no, that's that's obviously wrong and unscriptural. And um, but what concerns me as just a lay Christian is that I think that the kind of the pervasive narrative, both inside Christianity and outside of Christianity is not the conversation that you're you and I are having about what authentic Christianity is, but most of the people, including people like Noam Chomsky, would say, "Well, yeah, but Christianity is just a violent religion." Well, I, yeah, I think that to begin an answer is to say that in this understanding, to lay the blame on Christianity may be to miss the point that what we're describing is the direction that humanity you know, war and violence, redemptive violence. That is the religion of this world. I would say that there's really just two religions. And one is the religion of redemptive violence. And you'll encounter that religion in various religious myths. That's, you know, the reading that you get with Rene Girard, is that all of these myths begin with the notion that the violence and the evil precedes the good, and the good then arises as a result of the violence. And of course, that's always the kind of the, when we talk about any kind of violence as being a necessity, that's really the background here is that any peace that we have is going to be wrested from violence and evil. Any goodness that we have is one that will have to be enforced as if we come from a kind of originary violence. And this is Aristotelian, but it's just human. That In the beginning, there is this struggle, there is this chaos. I think that's a description not only of religious myth, I think that's the description of human psychology. That what we begin with personally, in some way, we, we, we begin, you know, in 
terms of a kind of struggle and a hostility and antagonism. And that just seems to be the, the thing that we live and move and have our being in. I, I think that that's humanity as we have it. I don't know that there's any religion other than the way of Christ that directly addresses this. This is uh, Rene Girard's point about the idea of, you know, there's myth and then there's the anti-myth of Christianity. If Christianity is not doing the work of naming the myth, of exposing the violence, of exposing the lie of some sort of redemptive violence, of an orientation to death, then I would say that, well, Christianity then just becomes another pagan religion, another form of nationalism. And I think that's the period that we're in. In, in a sense, I guess that's a worse estate than just being a good old pagan, because now, in fact, Christianity, an authentic Christianity, is probably less of a possibility for you, because you've, you imagine that you've already, you know, you've already heard that message. But of course, the point is, well, no, actually, as I'm saying all this, we've all traveled this road. This, you know, I, I became a Christian in Texas, and so the, it was. A, it's a long journey, and so we're all subject. We need. We all need to realize we're subject to all sorts of propaganda, all sorts of principalities, and this propaganda utilizes the religion. It falls back on the religion. It's deployed the religion as a part of the means of the propaganda. And that's certainly the case in, in this country. And so it's not an indictment of the religion of the New Testament, but I think it is an indictment of a form of religion that in fact empties the, the meaning of the gospel of its peaceableness. I mean, what is the gospel apart from the peace that is instituted in Christ? I just don't know. Apart from peaceableness, apart from nonviolence, apart from the love that that entails, I don't think you can have a hateful, death-dealing, violent Christianity and that it's the same religion, even though it may use a lot of the same words. I wouldn't necessarily say that it's a failure. In other words, it partakes of the general human failure. Certainly, it's a failure to comprehend and grasp, I think, what is the core teaching of the New Testament. I, I of course, want to affirm everything that you're saying, you know, but it's but it's deeply, deeply troubling to me, and I, and I know that it is to you. But the fact of the matter is, though, is that, that, that we, I think that both of us would agree that most American Christians, I don't know that many other Christians around the world, I know some, but I would say that most of the American Christians that I know would not associate peace with the gospel. They would rationalize, you know, violence in all of its different forms. And so um, I guess I'm just wondering about the power of the, isn't the whole point of Christianity to transform our, you know, our worldview, our, our ethics, our practices, you know, what we think is right, what we think is wrong, to have sort of a different outlook on these things than say the, our nation's government or, or just whatever and so i guess i'm just i guess all that to say that i can see how maybe someone on the outside that isn't having this conversation within the not just within the church because i guess again i want to say that i don't think the conversation that we're having right now is really a conversation that is happening in, in too much of the churches at least that i know of you know and so that's why i think that there's probably a lot of people who are on the outside who are going, yeah, I don't know, maybe there's a couple, maybe there's a couple of Dorothy Days and Martin Luther King Jr. out there. Maybe there's a Paul Axton or whatever who, who's teaching peace. But for the most part, it seems like American Christians are not only in favor of violence, um, but often are the people who are, uh, you know, empowering the people who are doing the violence on our behalf. And so I, I don't mean to take it. I mean, this is a pretty dark topic, right? I mean, what we're talking about is is evisceration of like 200,000 people and then their their children too for however many years. So it's not like it's a, this isn't like one of our happier talks or whatever. And what troubles me about it is the church's complicity. And, and, and I'm just wondering what we've learned in the 75 years, you know, and all the wars that have come after World War II, 
you know, to where, like you said, it's like, well, eventually Christianity just gets emptied of any sort of, you know, something that someone on the outside could look at and say, oh, well, here's a peaceful religion that's a, truly an alternative to the relation, you know, the religion of the, of the nation state. And I have I'm providing any answers or whatever. I guess I'm just kind of like lamenting the the situation because again i don't even think that most people would maybe they would just vehemently disagree with your retelling of the situation like they would just say it's not true we actually did have to bomb to end the war that in fact it does seem like chronicle you know chronologically that the war really did end after that that violence worked and then if we didn't do it you know then hitler just would have taken over the world and so someone's got to stand up for the people who just want to be you know peacemakers like i'm just giving the other side yeah, you know, my uh, daughter in uh, high school, she had uh, enough wherewithal at, at a very early age to present. She actually presented a paper on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And, of course, her teacher, who was uh, also her Sunday school teacher, uh, both in, you know, a science teacher and Sunday school teacher, just explained, you know, she presented the evidence, that m- much of the evidence that I presented. And it's you know, there's a kind of impenetrable barrier. And so, yeah, I understand that there's a wall and that the necessity of violence is one that people are just committed to. And uh, nonviolence just seems so unworkable and so impractical that clearly that's, I mean, once you see this thing, I mean, in a sense, I always think that John Lewis and as a follower of Martin Luther King Jr. is a nice example of this that it's not that nonviolence doesn't have its case. Uh, even it, it uh, can be argued for as a means. I mean, that's sort of Lewis's and that's the civil rights workers' argument is that nonviolence uh, is produced the successes of the Voters' Rights Act and the, the civil rights movement. And it, it was this commitment to nonviolence. So there are examples of this, even under, you know, the, the story that is told if, uh, you know, Oliver Stone does a history of the United States, he goes back and talks about Roosevelt. Roosevelt had a choice of uh, choosing vice president. And of course, he chooses Harry S. Truman. And Harry Truman, as a result of that, is going to become president. You know, you need to almost go back into the, the details of this history. Harry Truman, the party boss in Kansas City, kind of put Harry Truman up there as a, a kind of test. And his point was, I just want to show people that I can take the most ordinary, unintelligent man, a man who's a hat salesman, and if I choose to support him, I can make him president of the United States. He wasn't a brilliant politician and uh, Roosevelt certainly was not impressed by Harry S. Truman. Roosevelt, who he really wanted as vice president, was Henry Wallace. Henry Wallace was, I think, a truly Christian man who had a vision that was over and against the kind. I think that if Henry Wallace had been Roosevelt's vice president, then he very likely would have become president. I very much think that the dropping of the bombs would not have occurred. In fact, I would suggest that if Henry Wallace had become president after Roosevelt, that we wouldn't have entered into the Cold War because his whole, you know, the, the idea of Truman was that, oh, the, uh, we can't trust the Soviets. And of course, Wallace's point is, yeah, if you want to create distrust, that's the way to do it. And of course, Truman fires Wallace because of his anti-war rhetoric, his, his opposing of the, the devastation that was carried out in World War II. You know, when you get into the details of this, I think there are people that arose, people that would have had some common sense, people that would have been a counter-voice. But I think it, sometimes those people are heard, but of course, usually it is the warmongers. This is why I think it's valuable to do the sort of thing that we're doing that I think that we all, you know, somebody has to tell us, somebody has to to take part in the shaping of our conscience. And so it's a slow process, it was for me. And until we are saved from out of the propaganda or saved from out of a kind of bad theology, then we're not going to have the opportunity to be shaped 
by this alternative understanding. And so I see that as part of the service. That's, this is what I see Forging Plowshares. That's what I see these podcasts doing. Is that maybe somebody will hear this, that, that we're putting a counter voice out there. And I don't know how you move forward. And obviously you can't just uh, throw your hands up in despair and say, well, the whole thing's going to hell in a handbasket or we're destined for mutually assured destruction. No, I think that we actually can make significant choices. I think our, our thinking can have significance. It can influence things in a significant way. But we have to put forth some effort to do that. We have to, we have to dig a little deeper than, than just kind of the facile propaganda that's usually put out there. Yeah, no, that's good. That's exactly, I needed that. That was a, that was a nice uh, <laughs> positive turn and then reminder because uh, I think that you're right because I haven't always held the positions, of course, that I have, that I hold now. Of course, you know, there's a lot of people in my life who the more I change my positions, it's like the less they seem to approve. But I really do think that I, uh, that what we're trying to do is evolve more and become more and more Christian. You know, that's what we think theosis is, is the unification with God where you become more and more like Christ. I, for one, me personally, this is just my opinion. I don't think that Jesus would have dropped an, an atomic bomb on Nagasaki. You know, that's just my pr- pr- private Christian interpretation of who Jesus is, you know. But there was a time in my life, though, you know, I grew up with a giant American flag on my bedroom wall and was just steeped in, you know, American nationalism and mixed in with a little bit of evangelical fundamentalism. And that was just my introduction to the faith. And it wasn't until I sat in your classes and I, you know, and I do think that it's a, it's a painful process, or at least it was for me, to hear the message of the gospel that you're preaching, you know, to say, well... You know, peace really is a part of what it means to to follow, you know, the Holy Trinity, you know, to follow God in Christ. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.